Welcome to Becoming Byzantine, a webinar series focused on the Catechism, Christ or Pascha. In this series, we explore the faith, worship, and life of Byzantine churches. I'm Father Daniel Dozier, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Father Deacon Anthony Dragani, Mr. Robert Klesko, and Father Michael Wynn. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the series. So again, thank you for joining us today. We're very excited about our session, our first session, uh, our webinar on Becoming Byzantine, this introduction to the faith, prayer, and life of the Byzantine Church. I'm also here with our panelists, and we'll give them a chance to introduce themselves in just a moment. Uh, our agenda essentially today is uh, listed here on this first slide, and it's going to start with prayer, as all things should. Uh, and so we'll go ahead and begin with a prayer, and then I'll work, walk through the rest of the agenda. Uh, blessed is our God, always, now, and ever, and forever. Amen. I'm going to offer the prayer uh, before the gospel from the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Loving Master, let the pure light of your divine knowledge shine brightly in our hearts and open the eyes of our minds that we may understand the proclamation of your gospel. Instill the fear of your blessed commandments in us so that having trampled all carnal desires, we may lead a spiritual life both thinking and doing everything to please you. For you, O Christ our God, are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, and we give glory to you with your eternal Father, your all holy good and life-creating spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. Well, again, welcome. Glad to have all of you here today. Uh, we have some 245 people who registered for uh, this, this uh, first webinar in our series on Becoming Byzantine. And our agenda is, is fairly simple. Uh, after our prayer, which we just did, we're going to do a panel introduction. And then we're going to do an introduction to the series as well, so that you can understand a little bit more of the content of the series on Becoming Byzantine. And then we're going to give some suggestions on how to participate in the series. Uh, you may already be aware that it's more than just a series of webinars that we're offering, uh, but there are a number of recorded lessons as well. In fact, there will be 36 recorded lessons uh, on the Catechism Christ or Pascha, which you see represented here on the slide. And so you're going to have access to all of those lessons as part of the series and be able to participate in the webinar discussions as well. Uh, we're also going to be having a special guest uh, today, Father Joseph Matlack, uh, who recorded the first three lessons. And in fact, we'll be uh, recording all of the lessons on the topic of faith. So we say that uh, this uh, Becoming Byzantine series is about the faith, worship, and life of the church. Uh, Father Joseph is, has recorded uh, lessons on the subject of the faith of the church. And so we're delighted to have him here uh, today as well. And We'll give him a chance to introduce himself uh, too. And then we also have a number of giveaways we're going to be doing, uh, mainly uh, for a little booklet I put together for Catholic Answers called Eastern Catholicism or 20 Answers on Eastern Catholicism. So this is a resource that many people have found very helpful uh, in introducing them to the Eastern Catholic churches generally, although I am a Byzantine Catholic priest. Uh, this, is a, um, uh, this is a booklet that's designed to answer a lot of the, the core questions that people have whether they're visiting a Byzantine church for the first time, or even if they've been a lifelong Byzantine or Greek Catholic, and they just, uh, or, or another one of uh, the, a member of another of the uh, Eastern Catholic churches in communion with the Catholic church. Uh, this, is a, this is a resource that's designed to answer some of those questions. So we're, we're going to be doing some giveaways with, uh, of copies, free copies of Eastern Catholicism, uh, 20 answers from Catholic answers. And so that'll be part of our uh, part of what we do today. So 
what I'd like to do right now is to give our panelists a chance to introduce themselves. Um, so we're going to start uh, with, with our first panelist, Father Deacon Anthony Dragani. Uh, Father Deacon, would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, it's a pleasure to be here with everyone. Uh, I work as a professor of religious studies at a small college in Pennsylvania, Mount Aloysius, as a Catholic college. And I, I do a lot of um, you know, recordings of videos on different aspects of faith. Also, I, I'm a Ukrainian Catholic deacon, and I serve two parishes in the area. Uh, one is in Revlock, uh, Protection of Blessed Virgin Mary. The other is in Northern Cambria, Pennsylvania, St. Mary's. Wonderful. Thank you. It's great to have you uh, again on our panel. We, For those who may be aware, we had done a, a webinar on how to attend a Byzantine Divine Liturgy, and uh, Father Deacon Anthony and Mr. Robert Klesko and myself we all, and, and Bianca, we all participated in that webinar. So, so some of these faces might be familiar to you, uh, including Father Deacon Anthony's. And so uh, how about uh, Robert Klesko? Would you mind introducing yourself? Yes, thank you, Father. It's, it's great to be here with, with you all again. A um, little bit about myself. I'm married. Um, so if you hear my six children in the background, um, it's always chaos at my house. Um, but I'm, my wife's name is Andrea. Uh, we have five boys, one girl. I'm very blessed in my family life. Um, I'm also in my third year of uh, formation for the diaconate. Just started a, a few months ago, so I'm, I'm loving the program at Byzantine Catholic Seminary. It's just uh, a wonderful, wonderful place to study. And God willing, I'll be tonsured a reader in April, um, so that I'm looking forward to that. Um, and I work at EWTN as a theology advisor, um, which is a fancy title that I just look over the programming, make sure it's uh, up to snuff theologically. And uh, I try to get on the network as many Eastern Catholic guests as possible. So it's, it's great to be with y'all. Thank you, Robert. And, and we'll look forward to uh, having pictures of that, uh, or at least sharing pictures at that webinar or at, at the webinar following uh, your, uh, your tantra. So that's great. And then we also have with us uh, Father Joseph Matlack. Uh, Father Joseph uh, comes to us from Charlotte, North Carolina. And as I mentioned before, we'll be uh, offering the, uh, the lessons on faith. So Father, would you mind uh, introducing yourself? Yes, good evening. And everyone the Pacific of the United States. So um, Father Joseph Matlack, um, coming from Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, what do I do here? Well, I St. Basil the Great, where I'm, uh, I'm administrator of a mission in uh, Columbia, South Carolina, known as Holy Cross. And during the week, I do chaplaincy work in uh, Roman Catholic schools in the Diocese of Shirt. Um, and that's uh, good enough for now, I suppose. Okay, terrific. Thank you very much. And then also, uh, Mrs. Bianca Gill. Uh, Bianca, would you mind uh, introducing yourself as well? Hi, my name is Bianca Gill. I live in Irving, Texas with my husband, Andrew, and our baby girl, Francesca. She's six months old. Um, Andrew was already Ruthenian Catholic when we started dating, and then um, I switched rights when we got married a little over two years ago. We attend St. Basil the Great here in Irving. Um, I have my master's in social work, and I'm staying at home with the baby currently and working with Father Daniel. That's great. And this is your this is your first uh, your first baby, right? So it's wonderful. First one, first one. That's great, excellent. 
So thank you. And, and so, and my name is Father Daniel Dozier. Uh, I am a Byzantine Catholic priest of the Upper Key of Phoenix. I actually live in Olympia, Washington. So for those who may not be familiar with how uh, many of our Eastern Catholic upper, upper Keys are structured, oftentimes they cover not just a single territory like a city, uh, but a huge swath of territory. Uh, and the Upper Key of Phoenix uh, covers basically the Western half of the United States, including um, Alaska and Hawaii. And uh, so I'm located in Olympia, Washington. I have a little parish here, St. George's Byzantine Catholic Church. We also have our shrine, uh, our led to Our Lady Perpetual Help and an annual pilgrimage to that shrine. Uh, I am a husband of one, a father of three, and a grandfather of one. And um, I also uh, teach uh, scripture at our Byzantine Catholic Seminary in Pittsburgh. I teach it online and uh, am just delighted to be able to uh, be with all of you and, and have been a part of the organization of this Becoming Byzantine series. And I'll share a little bit about that in just a moment. Uh, but, uh, but again, thank you for joining us today. And uh, thank you for your interest in learning more about Byzantine Catholicism in its many different forms. And uh, we're delighted to have uh, all of our panelists uh, to come to share their own insights on that as well. Um, I mentioned I'm part of the Eparchy of Phoenix and um, the Byzantine Catholic Eparchy of Phoenix, as I mentioned, covers a huge swath of territory. It is also the co-sponsor of this particular series. Um, now, the, when I say the Byzantine Catholic Church, I'm referring primarily to the Ruthenian uh, Byzantine Catholic Church. And of course, uh, you have, for instance, the Melkite Eparchy of Newton, which covers the entire, uh, entire part of the United States, and I think some parts of Mexico as well. Uh, and so, um, you know, our, our little eparchy uh, covers, again, that, that whole territory to the west side of the states, but they are co-sponsoring this particular uh, event and this series, and we're delighted to have their sponsorship um, as part of our, our uh, effort to evangelize and to catechize, to help people become more aware of the Byzantine Catholic gospel, and so we're delighted to have them uh, sponsor this, along with Vineyard of the Lord Catholic Ministries, which is a, a new uh, nonprofit focused on cultivating the Lord's vineyard by focusing on evangelization through truth and beauty uh, of the gospel and the common good of, of the churches of East and West, especially through catechesis and the sacred arts. So part of the effort you see here with Becoming Byzantine relates to that core mission of sharing the good news and the beauty and truth of the gospel. Uh, let me just share, and, and just as we start, a little bit of the purpose of this series, since we've kind of been alluding to it. Um, I mentioned that this series is entitled Becoming Byzantine. And uh, we um, called it Becoming Byzantine oftentimes because we have people who ask and say, look, I'm interested uh, in becoming Byzantine or I attend a Byzantine church or I'd like to learn a little bit more about the Byzantine Catholic churches. And so uh, we thought this, the title of this series, along with its subtitle, uh, Introducing the Byzantine Catholic Faith, Worship, and Life of the Church, uh, using the Catechism, Christ or Pascha, uh, was was a good approach um, because some people go through a, a course like this, a series like this, and it, it whets their appetite to learn more. Uh, they actually make decisions to start attending a church or they're already attending and they just want to go deeper. They just want to learn a little bit more. And so Becoming Byzantine is uh, intended to be a series that helps people uh, go as deep as you want. Um, and if you are a Western Christian, if you are a, a Latin Catholic, member of the Latin Catholic Church, or perhaps even a Protestant, 
and uh, we can share with you some of the richness of our faith, and you walk away uh, with, uh, with a deeper understanding and appreciation for your relationship with God and, and how that relationship with Christ is expressed and experienced in the Byzantine Catholic tradition. Uh, we feel we've done our job. This is part of what we're trying to do in our discussions in the, in the Becoming Byzantine series. And this idea for the series, again, really came out of our pastoral work, our work as catechists and teachers in parish and parishes in media, social media, and uh, people asking for a basic introduction. Um, I know with work I've been doing uh, recently with Catholic Answers, uh, Father Deacon Anthony, some of the work that you've been doing with the Reason and Theology uh, show, uh, in addition to your East to West uh, website, and then of course, Robert, your work in EWTN, you know, we're all hearing that there's a lot of interest in Eastern Catholicism. People are very, very interested in this topic. Uh, in fact, it was said to me, oh, no, it's a real hot topic these days. So, so, so there is interest, and we feel that we're trying to meet that need. Um, and so I thought we'd maybe start by talking about some, some basic terms. Let's just define our terms. When we, st- when we talk about the Eastern Catholic Church. We talk about the Catholic Church. We talk about Byzantine Catholicism. Let's talk about what we mean. And we did some of this in our webinar on how to attend a Byzantine Divine Liturgy. Let's just be clear for our series here. So, uh, so Father Deacon Anthony, why don't we why don't we start with you? What what would you say if someone were to ask you what is Catholic Christianity, and more specifically, what is the Catholic Church? How would you respond to that? I, I would say the Catholic Church is the original Christian Church founded by Jesus. We see in the Gospels that Jesus didn't just come to give a message, but he also came to build a church. And this church would be entrusted with passing on his message, passing on his teachings, and bringing us the sacraments and whatnot. And the Catholic Church is that church. The Catholic Church is built upon the teachings of the apostles. And the apostles were the immediate disciples of Christ. And they passed on their teachings to, you know, uh, other generations. They ordained bishops through the laying on of hands who ordained bishops. So in Catholicism, there's a principle called apostolic succession, which is that there's a chain of the laying on of hands, you know, from the current Catholic bishops all the way back to the apostles. But again, that shows that we're an apostolic church. But Catholic Christianity is more than just being an apostolic church. It's also about uh, being in communion with the Bishop of Rome. The Bishop of Rome is the successor of St. Peter, who was the leader of the 12 apostles. And for us, he functions as a kind of a guardian of unity. That's great. That's great. So, uh, so when we think then about, you know, Eastern, or excuse me, about the Catholic Church and Catholic Christianity, and uh, we talk a lot about Eastern Catholicism uh, mm-hmm. and the Catholic Churches, what exactly is Eastern Catholicism, and generally speaking, and then what do we mean when we talk about the Byzantine Catholic Churches? Sure. So, you know, the Catholic Church goes back to the apostles, but the apostles went throughout the world and established different local communities. And in different parts of the world, uh, Catholicism, Christianity, developed very differently. Mm-hmm. So Christianity in Rome would look different than, say, Christianity in Greece or Christianity in India. Mm-hmm. So uh, Christianity developed in different, different ways in different parts of the world and took on its own flavor, its own unique way of worship, its own even understanding of theology. You know, the same fundamental faith, but different expressions of that faith. So Catholicism today is actually a communion of 24 different churches. And these churches all, you know, have their own unique way of looking at things or unique way of doing things. They all, you know, have the same essential faith, the same essential sacraments, but they're approached somewhat differently. 
So that's the Catholic Church. And all these churches together are you know, united with the Pope of Rome as the guardian of unity. So Eastern Catholicism refers to the Eastern churches within Catholicism. And of the 24, one is Western. That's the Latin church, often called the Roman Catholic Church. But there are 23 Eastern Catholic churches. But among these 23 Eastern Catholic churches, there are various rites that are used. And the term rite ref refers to uh, primarily the system of worship, but also an approach to theology, an approach to th spirituality. And there are, depending on how you count it, about seven different rites used among the different Catholic churches. Um, but the Byzantine rite is used by a number of different Eastern Catholic churches. So, for example, the Ruthenian Church, the Ukrainian Church, the Melkite Church, the Romanian Church, uh, others as well, all use the Byzantine rite. So when we talk about Byzantine Catholicism, we're talking about uh, a whole group of Eastern Catholic churches whose tradition kind of evolved from the old Byzantine Empire, Constantinople, and has that flavor of Christianity. Yeah, some people are really surprised when we talk about Byzantine Catholic churches uh, in, the, in the plural, because, for instance, you know, my jurisdiction is called the Byzantine Catholic Church. Uh, but, uh, but in fact, it, it really covers, you know, you know, some, you know, well over a dozen, uh, or more, perhaps even uh, 16 or 17 different jurisdictions, and many of which we have here in the United States, which is, which is wonderful. Uh, Robert, you are, for instance, uh, uh, a Byzantine Catholic studying in a Byzantine Catholic seminary, um, but you're attending a Melkite Greek Catholic community uh, there in Alabama. So you have some some a great opportunity to be exposed to more than just the Ruthenian Byzantine Catholic tradition. You've also got this wonderful Melkite tradition as well. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So 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 then, kind of building on that. So thank you, Father uh, Father Deacon. So kind of building on that, Robert. Let's let's think then about this relationship between the Byzantine or Greek Catholic churches and the Pope of Rome, uh, this much larger Western Roman or Latin Catholic Church. Are we simply Latin Catholics in funny vestments? So we, we, get, we get questions like, aren't you guys just Roman Catholic? Uh, you know, maybe we've got <laughs> some exotic liturgies, better tasting food. But, you know, what is our relationship with, uh, with the Pope of Rome, but also the Latin Catholic Church? That's, that's right. Um, well, first, I do have to say we do have better food. Um, we just finished our St. George Food Festival this past weekend, and it was phenomenal. So I, I'm, I'm kind of tainted by that experience in a good way. Um, so the thing of it is, no, we're not Roman, um, and that's okay. Um, we have a unique expression of the gospel of Christ in theology, in our worship, in our tradition. Um, so yeah, oftentimes people, when they hear Catholic, they immediately equate Roman, um, but that's just not the case. And in fact, our Lord willed diversity in the church. Um, when he says to the apostles, go into the whole world and preach the good news and baptize, right? Um, the gospel is a love letter that he sent throughout the world through the apostles. Um, and the communities that they founded um, our Lord wasn't expecting the same response from every community, right? Um, the gospel became enculturated in a variety of cultures and languages and, and traditions. Um, and so they're all a unique love letter, a unique response back to Christ. Um, and that's the beauty of the Catholic Church, um, is all of those wonderful, beautiful expressions of our love for Christ expressed in our theology and our spirituality and in our liturgy. 
And, and so then, uh, I, I think wonderfully said, so, so our experience of Catholicism, you know, we still have the same seven sacramental mysteries, for instance, that the Latin Catholic Church would have. Uh, we still honor and pray for the Pope of Rome in our, in our divine liturgy. Uh, we might borrow the, the language of Lumen Gentium and say that we are with and under the Pope. You know, we are with the Pope as, as the uh, successor or, or with him as the patriarch of the West and under in the sense that we, uh, all bishops and, and all churches are, uh, are under the successor of St. Peter, but, but not in the same way that the Latin ch church would be under, uh, under the Pope of Rome. How, how would we make that distinction, just, just to be clear? Well, I suppose I would put it in terms of love again. Hmm. Um, you know, Christ, you know, when he, when he prayed that his apostles might all be one, the expectation of the unity there was a unity of love. Um, and so we're not Roman, and that's okay, as I said. But we have a, a love and affection for our father, the Pope, right? Pope meaning father. Um, so we look to him as that source of unity, as, as Father Deacon Anthony was saying, um, but also that filial relationship, that that response of love, because Rome was that city where Peter and Paul um, met their martyrdom. Um, you know, Rome became kind of the conduit through which the gospel was diffused throughout the known world, uh, thanks to those wonderful Roman roads. Um, so we owe a lot to to Rome and to the establishment of, of, of Rome under under St. Peter. Um, and we maintain that communion with Rome out of love, out of love. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, the, the, the words of uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch that, that regarding Rome, the church which presides in love. Uh, and, uh, and so Rome, in that sense, functions, uh, if you will, as, as an apostolic see, as a matrix of unity um, among the different churches that are equal in dignity uh, and yet unique in expression. Um, so, so one, one way to kind of, if I can summarize this, I have uh, just a, a quick graphic to share, which I think is, is rather helpful, uh, just to summarize a lot of what you and Father Deacon Anthony uh, have just shared. If we think about the Eastern Catholic churches or the Catholic church more generally, when our Lord Jesus Christ came to earth in the fullness of time, as St. Paul says, yeah, he came to establish one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The church was always part of the divine plan. Uh, that God would form a people that would be uh, one in faith, uh, worship and love, uh, that would truly be holy, uh, that would bear the likeness of, of God to the world, that would be Catholic or universal in its fullness and uh, bringing all the nations together, uh, and apostolic. It had a mission uh, to bring all of humanity into union with Christ, the new Adam, in a new humanity uh, and, uh, through, through the mystical body that he would establish. And if we think about this one holy Catholic and apostolic church that Christ established uh, that would be a truly apostolic, uh, it would have one faith that they would proclaim. There would be one uh, worship, one, one form of worship in the sense of uh, the seven sacramental mysteries of the church and the divine praises, uh, which we know to be the Psalms and the different hours of prayer. Uh, there would be one apostolic leadership. So that succession that Father Deacon Anthony uh, made mention of. Uh, so this one holy Catholic and apostolic church would have a shared 
faith, a shared worship, and a shared leadership. But as the church spread, uh, so as uh, both uh, you, Robert, and Father Deacon Anthony mentioned, as the church spread, it the gospel took root in the different cultures and peoples around Asia Minor and and expanding into Europe and so forth, um, and it uh, uh, it incorporated the artistic, linguistic, cultural, philosophical uh, genius of the local people. And at the same time, began to express that one faith, one worship, one leadership, according to its own uh, unique genius in, in terms of liturgical expression, in terms of theological expression, uh, in terms of uh, spirituality, uh, and in terms of, of uh, a law. So we would, for instance, have different disciplines that we would observe as um, as Byzantine Catholic Christians, um, for instance, uh, that that would differ for uh, even from other Eastern Catholic churches, uh, and that's and that's fine. That that diverse expression, uh, I think, the best example or best analogy for that is uh, is the idea of a mosaic icon. This comes from uh, the wonderful Archbishop Joseph Riot that the churches are, um, you know, just as we have a mosaic icon, each one has its own unique piece goal and made of different materials and colors and shapes uh, when all assembled together uh, it reflects the face of christ to the world and so the church is meant to be that mosaic icon with eastern and western expressions uh, together revealing the face of christ uh, who is uh, you know truly the son of god and, and expressing the gospel in that own unique way so i'll, I'll pause here any 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 feedback on this this thing is it a fair summary of of what we've um, what what we've been talking about so far, absolutely, and the mosaic analogy is perfect. Yeah, I, f I find a lot of people that resonates with a lot of people because they can un understand and appreciate a mosaic image, um, but you know the beauty of those individual pieces uh, is uh, it's it's distinctive, it's unrepeatable, and yet at the same time it's part of a, of a broader whole. So that's, that's very important to appreciate the diversity and unity that is the church. So with that said, uh, you know, I, I've heard some people refer to what we're in right now as uh, an Eastern Catholic moment. Uh, so we think about, you know, yes, the church is diverse. Yes, the church has all these different unique expressions of the gospel. But there seems to be this growing interest, which we alluded to earlier, in Eastern Catholicisms, because we could probably use that in, in the plural, um, by those who, are, who have not been raised in an Eastern tradition. Uh, and, and I say that, you know, whether they are Christian already, uh, whether they're baptized Christian, maybe baptized Catholics in another jurisdiction, uh, but... Uh, also, those who are, are Jews and Muslims or non-believers and Buddhists and so forth. We have a number of people who are kind of rediscovering Christianity or seeing it new, anew uh, through the lens of Eastern Catholicism. Why, why do you suppose this is something of an of a area or topic of interest right now? What, what do you suppose is driving that? I, I think part of it is people are looking for something with roots People are looking for something that has a connection with, with a long tradition. Uh, we live in a culture where there's a tendency to overemphasize the importance of the new and the different and to look down upon the past. You know, we, we see the world in terms of progress, but in the, 
in the pursuit of progress, we often let go of what's really important to a lot of people. So people are looking for something ancient, something that connects them to the past. I think people are looking for truth as well. They're looking for, you know, clear guidance on what Christ, you know, how Christ wishes them to live. So Eastern Catholicism has this connection with the past, this connection with antiquity, that in some cases, for better or for worse, uh, Western Christianity has oftentimes moved away from. You know, in recent years, uh, Western Christianity, Western Catholicism in some cases, has kind of moved in a more modern direction. And I think people are looking for something that seems more ancient and authentic. Now, beyond that, Eastern Catholicism offers a unique approach to spirituality and liturgy that's very mystical, very otherworldly. You know, people come to our churches for the first time, and often they, they say, I feel like I'm in a different world. And that's something powerful, um, because the culture we live in is toxic, um, but our services, our theology, our spirituality is extremely countercultural. And I think people are drawn to that. They see something there that speaks to them. Now, everything I said can also apply to Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, but what I've seen is a lot of people who, you know, perhaps initially were drawn towards Eastern Orthodoxy are finding their way to Eastern Catholicism um, because Eastern Orthodoxy, which is beautiful and wonderful in its own right, um, there's a tendency in there to define itself against the West. You know, in Eastern Orthodoxy, you often find people who say, uh, you know, what we do is this, this, and this, because the West does that, that, and that. Um, there's a strong anti-Western vibe in many Eastern Orthodox circles. But Eastern Catholicism, we're in communion with the West. We're in communion with the Roman Catholic Church. And we're in communion with, you know, a variety of different Eastern traditions. So you find the mosaic there. You find, you know, a, an appreciation of St. Francis as well as, you know, various Eastern saints Whereas in Orthodoxy, it might be harder to find that. So I think people are drawn to us because of our mystical tradition, our theology, our beautiful otherworldly liturgy, but also because we are connected with the Western Christian Church as well, with the Western Christian tradition. We don't reject that. And I think people can see that the two complement each other very well. Wonderful. Robert, do you have uh, any, any thoughts to add to that? Yeah. Um, to build on what Father Deacon Anthony was saying, um, we live in an incredibly wounded culture. Um, people are hurting. Uh, and I think you just need to turn on the news to see how many people in our, in our world are struggling for personal identity, personal meaning. They've got demons that they need to overcome. They've been wounded in so many ways. I mean, the culture just wounds people. Um, and our emphasis, especially through our spiritual tradition on theosis, right? Um, that cooperation with God's grace that brings an encounter with Christ and healing to the soul. Um, and that deep spiritual tradition of we're all wounded sinners, right? We're all uh, fallen. We all, you know, and really the crux of the Christian life is inviting Christ more and more into our, into our lives, into our souls, so that his healing grace can can fill in those gaps super abundantly, right? That, that's what the encounter with God does. Is it's not just healing, but it's an, a super abundant encounter with Christ. Uh, so much so that our, our very natures are elevated and we become partakers of the divine nature, as St. Peter says in his letter. And so I think that's really attractive uh, to modern people. I think that's really attractive to our culture, to 
you know, all of those who are really searching for meaning and identity and they're, you know, the, the world can offer them nothing except more woundedness. But with, with Christ and especially in, in the East with the emphasis on theosis, we have a lot to offer, a lot to offer. Yeah, very interesting. I, I like that connection to theosis. I mean, I think about the worship of our church and, you know, it, it's, it, it's intended to be this glorious encounter with God that reveals God to us, but also us to ourselves. What is our dignity, but as the image and likeness of, of God, uh, as it is revealed in Christ and in this glorious worship, suddenly, you know, we are made partakers uh, of, of heavenly glory. Um, so you, this, the, the sense of worship um, is, is meant to not just entertain us. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think anybody would say that our worship is entertaining. Uh, there's beauty most certainly to it. You know, I think about a lot of our musical traditions and, uh, there's a lot of beauty there, but beauty leads us into a, a relationship, a communion with the truth, uh, and, uh, and a loving relationship with that. So, so this glory that is revealed in the liturgy is meant to, is meant to elevate us, uh, to do, as we say in the Trubakin, to, to set aside those earthly cares um, and to, but then to, to leave the liturgy, uh, to do the liturgy after the liturgy, to transform the world uh, based upon what we've seen at, uh, basically in, at the mountain of God, you know, what we've encountered and experienced there. I, Father Joseph, I, I uh, don't mean to exclude you here. I know we, we have some uh, questions for you at the end, but I, I'm wondering if you have a perspective as well, especially given the work that you've been doing in, in planting churches um, in the Southeast, do you have a, a thought around why this might be uh, an Eastern Catholic moment? Well, also, not just in my work planting churches uh, for our faithful, but also working amongst Western Christians. Mm -hmm. I have, uh, as uh, it's called uh, faculties or bi-ritual faculties, where I also minister among the Latin Catholic faithful, of which I was one despite the fact that I should have been uh, Eastern Catholic, but like many of our families in intermarried situations, uh, usually the, the bigger body, the, the more numerous uh, uh, populous body wins out. So I, I ended up uh, growing up as a Latin uh, Catholic. But what I'm finding is that our spirituality is far more approachable uh, by uh, for Western Christians and Western Catholics, and it, I can't obviously say why in too much detail, but basically they appreciate things like the more medicinal um, approach as opposed to the more legalistic approach. They appreciate the notion of divinization versus uh, very sharp. Uh, boundaries between uh, for example sin and grace there's much more of a ladder approach rather than uh, I, I'm not really sure what word to use but but things like this are attractive so the spirituality is attractive and it's an, it's it's in, and oftentimes it's it's new to them it's something that they did not associate with Christianity they associated it more with far eastern religions such as Buddhism and Hinduism uh, that this, for example, just recently, I met someone who was astounded that we meditate, that we actually have 
meditative contemplative prayer. Now, it is true that the Western church also has that in their tradition, but it, it is it has perdured far more in our tradition as, uh, as something not simply for monastics, but for everybody. It, it's, it's something that, everybody, that has been accessible to everybody. And because of that, because it forms such a part of our tradition, the mystical nature of things uh, is something that is, it, and it's unusual. And, and I fi I'm finding it's unusual. I'm finding that it, almost like they don't know what to do with us or what to think about us because we should be there. We, we should be something completely Far Eastern and non-Christian. And yet here we are saying we're Christians and Catholics. And that's very uh, intriguing. And uh, I find uh, I'm having far more success when people don't know what to make of me than when people box me into a certain compartment, because especially nowadays, when Christianity is being written off, to have a Christian coming in and to have the response of, I don't know what to make of this person, is actually a good thing. That's what I'm finding. Yeah, no, I think that's very interesting. And, and one, one point of accessibility uh, when it comes to our tradition is most certainly the use of the Jesus prayer. For a lot of people, that is their first encounter with Eastern Christian expressions of spirituality, um, especially through the book, The Way of a Pilgrim. I remember uh, when I was in high school uh, visiting the Abbey of Gethsemane uh, in Kentucky, where Thomas Merton uh, was, and, uh, and, and finding in the, in the monastery library at the guest house, the book, The Way of a Pilgrim. And I, I started reading that, and I've, I've read it, gosh, at least seven or eight times since then, but it's this wonderful story. It's, it's really a parable about a man who, who hears that verse uh, from St. Paul about praying without ceasing and wants to understand what that means and is eventually taught the Jesus prayer. So, uh, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, or sometimes have mercy on me, a sinner. This constant repetition uh, that suddenly becomes this, this moment, again, of, of encounter with the mind and the heart uh, encountering God, and out of that comes a uh, a truly Christian outlook on the world and on ourselves, and a vocation to our relationship with God. It's it's a beautiful story, but I think I think that prayer and I would say icons as well, uh, oftentimes are are points of connection that people make to especially to the to the Greek Catholic or the Byzantine Catholic tradition. Uh, Father Deacon Anthony, you, you had also mentioned this idea, too, of um, accessibility or communion with the other Eastern jurisdictions as part of it. And that is one of the things I think that is noteworthy as, as a difference with Orthodoxy is that if you are a Chalcedonian Orthodox, for instance, pretty much your span of communion, uh, the limits of your communion will be almost exclusively Byzantine. Uh, it's, it's with rare exception. Um, and, and said, but, you know, when, when you are an Eastern Catholic or when you're a Latin Catholic, you're now in communion with multiple expressions of, of the East. Would you, would you agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for those who aren't familiar with the terminology, so the Eastern Orthodox churches also use the Byzantine rite, the same way that Byzantine Catholics do. We're pretty much identical. Um, if you walked into our churches, you couldn't tell the difference except we pray for the Pope. Um, but everything else is almost exactly the same in, in most ways. But we are in communion with the Catholic Church. We're in communion with Rome, which means we're in communion with, you know, um, you know, Coptic, 
Catholics, we're in communion with Maronite Catholics, we're in communion with, you know, Syriac Catholics, a whole variety of, of churches and traditions that are not Byzantine, as well as the Roman Church. Whereas in Eastern Orthodoxy, everything is very exclusively Byzantine. Now, there are some Western Rite Orthodox parishes that try and do the old, you know, Western liturgy as they've re-envisioned it, but they've heavily Byzantinized it. Um, because again, the Byzantine theology, the Byzantine spirituality is kind of the dominant ethos. So the fact that there's this diversity in Eastern Catholicism is a big part of our beauty. I also wanted to, to uh, respond to something that Father Joseph said, which I think is so true. I never thought about this before, but he's absolutely right. <clears throat> the fact that Eastern Catholics are a little uh, unusual, right? The fact that people aren't familiar with us is actually a huge advantage in reaching them with the message of Christ. Because a lot of people have been inoculated against Christianity. People have grown up with enough Christianity to, to know what it is and to resist it. Uh, and in their minds, Christianity is often synonymous with a Western church or with, you know, you know, with Protestantism or some bad experience they had with Roman Catholicism. The fact that we're so different, we kind of, you know, put their expectations aside and it gives us a chance to reach them with the message of Christ, where otherwise they might have walls up. Yes, I, I think that's uh, that's uh, definitely true. Uh, it's it's like uh, I, I like to say it's an emphasis on a different syllable. You know, when it comes to the, the expression of the gospel, we we emphasize certain things that may not have the same emphasis. You'll still find it in the great repository of Catholic tradition, um, and yet we're expressing it in a new way. And when I have Latin Catholics come in to visit, you know, our, our, my Byzantine Catholic parish, I'll tell them, look, you know, uh, you'll come and experience the liturgy in a whole new way. And you'll go back to your uh, Latin Catholic church and you'll see it in a whole new light. You'll see the liturgy in an in a, in a entirely different way. And, and that's part of, I think, part of our apostolate, if you will, being in communion with all the different Catholic churches is to share the light of the East uh, so that, you know, people can uh, even go back to their own traditions and appreciate uh, Christ's presence there because they've seen it in a, in a different way uh, in the Eastern tradition. So I, I want to come back uh, to, to our uh, discussion here, but before I do that, I'd like to also give people a chance to uh, ask questions. Uh, there is a Q&A feature on the Zoom control panel. So we've got, let's see, uh, right now, We've got, okay, here's, so here's a question from, from uh, Jeffrey Perez. Uh, does the Ruthenian Catholic Church use the same catechism as the Ukrainian Catholic Church? So, uh, so why don't we, uh, Robert, why don't we have you respond to that? Yeah, sure. Um, it kind of varies parish to parish. Um, we certainly do love the Ukrainian Catholic catechism. It is a great gift to all of the Eastern Catholic churches, um, and uh, it's widely used among the Ruthenians, uh, not in any kind of an official way, uh, but it's certainly a resource that we turn to very, very often for faith formation, for, you know, parishes uh, setting up uh, ca their catechetical programs and things like that. Um, and it's it's a particular gift precisely because it, it really embodies the Eastern patristic tradition and our liturgical tradition, uh, which we share. And again, that that's a great thing about the Eastern Catholic churches all being in communion with one another, right? Mm -hmm. So the Ukrainian church put it out, but mm -hmm. certainly 
the Coptic Catholic Church can use it too. The Ruthenians, the Romanians. So it's it's a wonderful way to kind of bridge that communion, all for the building up of the body of Christ. Yes, and in fact, I know of uh, some Melkite parishes as well that have made mm-hmm. use of Christ or Pascha as a catechism. Absolutely. And there are specific things in the catechism, which you'll see uh, as you go through it and, and as you participate in the program, which are very specific to the Ukrainian Greek Catholic tradition. But there are other aspects. I'd say m- the majority of what's reflected here uh, cuts across all Greek Catholic jurisdictions. It's really attempting to express um, as, as beautifully as possible the broader Greco-Catholic tradition uh, that would apply um, you know, whether you're Melkite or Romanian or Ukrainian or Ruthenian, uh, it, it does Italo-Albanian, uh, whatever it happens to be. So great. Uh, and then the next question, uh, thank you, Robert. The next question that is asked uh, is, what is the relationship between the Byzantine churches and the USCCB? Hmm. Father Joseph, maybe you could tackle that one. Well, the bishops all form part of the episcopacy of the United States. So they're equally Catholic bishops with the Latin or Roman Catholic bishops. And the USCCB is divided into 15 different regions. So -hmm. if you think each region has its own, uh, you know, uh, grouping, mostly because they're in the same area, they know each other, they can have relationships. But all the Eastern Catholic bishops, to my knowledge, form the 15th and the final region. Again, probably because we're so small, even though we are spread out around the country, we are uh, much, much smaller in terms of the numbers. Mm-hmm. So they participate in the broader uh, communion of Catholic churches in the United States at the same time um, collaborate together as Eastern Catholic jurisdictions. But then there's also sort of the, the more the Byzantine specific ones because there are Chaldean Catholics that participate Maronite Catholics, for instance, Syro-Malabar, and so forth, that are all here in the United States that are part of that broader um, uh, jurisdiction, but or not jurisdiction, but um, grouping within the USCCB. Uh, and at the same time, even the Greek Catholics will sometimes meet, I think, and, and have discussions among themselves because of that shared tradition. Uh, Father Deacon Anthony, uh, so thank you, Father Joseph. Can you quickly summarize the theological differences between the Roman and the Byzantine churches? <laughs> and, no, I cannot. <laughs> uh, what I would say is that we share the same fundamental beliefs of faith, but we look at them differently, we express them differently. And if you stick with us you know, during our monthly sessions over the next several months, I think you'll get a good picture of all that, but to do it quickly would be, uh, I couldn't do it justice, I'm afraid. Yeah, that's a, it's a, that's a good answer. And, and actually staying tuned is a good approach because as we go through this, you're going to see, again, those similarities, but at the same time, those differences and the emphasis within, within the Greek Catholic tradition. And we'll be sure to point those out uh, too, without engaging, as you mentioned, Father Deacon Anthony, kind of in that false dichotomy, uh, you know, that, that basically attempts to pit East and West against one another. Eastern Catholic churches, in my experience, are it's a, a far more erratic expression of orthodoxy in terms of that's what we're striving for. Uh, and that's not to paint all orthodox as being polemical because they're not. We have many wonderful orthodox friends and uh, those who are also partners in dialogue. 
but but our I think one of the things about our tradition is that we do tend to be much more irenic in our in our approach, looking for uh, the complementarity of the traditions rather than always seeing them as as being opposed. Uh, there's a last question here. Um, are your feast days and liturgical calendar similar to the Roman Catholics? Uh, I'm, uh, I, I'd say either Robert or, or Father Joseph. Either one of you want to take that? Well, I do both. So I can say from experience that the major feast days would be the same. So Christmas, Pascha, other feast days such as the Annunciation, Saints Peter and Paul, the Dormition, or called the Assumption in the West, and a few others, uh, would be the same. Uh, we do have a lot of differences. So the sanctoral cycle, so the saints celebrated by the Latin church would be, uh, sometimes they include the big ones that we share in common that would be Eastern as well as Western. So Chrysostom and St. Basil the Great. But oftentimes they have saints particular to the Western tradition, while we have saints that many Westerners, whose names many Westerners can't even pronounce. Uh, but we also sometimes have the same feast on a different day. So the big example would be the Immaculate Conception is celebrated by the West on December the 8th, while we would celebrate on the 9th, which, by the way, the West used to do. Uh, so about the time of Juan St. Juan Diego still celebrated on the 9th, that was moved a day earlier. So the big, the big feast days, yes. Uh, other, other feast days may be the same thing on different days, and other feast days completely different depending on what was local to, to the group of people celebrating the same one mystery. Well, and a great example of that is just what we experienced recently with the exaltation of the Holy Cross. Uh, in the West, it's the triumph of the cross, I believe. Uh, in the East, we, we celebrate the exaltation of the Holy Cross. So, uh, you know, similar uh, theme, obviously, uh, but at the same time, kind of celebrated in its own distinctive way. And for us, it's one of the 12 great feasts of the of the church's year as well. But those are things that we'll get into. I think it'll be an interesting discussion. I think that is one of the ways that you see those differences and emphasis is especially in the uh, the festal cycle of the church. So great question. So so I want to shift gears a little bit here. So thank you uh, to all of our panelists in, in answering these questions. Um, I want to shift gears and uh, in thinking about you know, we've, we've talked about kind of an introduction to series. Um, we use a particular tool in here, which was referenced, which is the uh, Christ our Pascha catechism. Um, and uh, let, let's take a, a moment, maybe take a step back and talk about what a catechism is. Now, I actually have a copy of this. Um, it's somewhat hard to find. You, you almost have to to, to smuggle them in from Canada, I think, uh, last time I checked. I don't know if there's some available in the United States, but we've made those available to you uh, in, uh, in an, uh, I say we, it's actually uh, Royal Doors, Father Michael Wynn, who will be teaching in our program. He's the English language editor of the catechism. Uh, they have made the catechism available for free online. You can download it as a PDF uh, and uh, we'll post that link here shortly. Uh, but let, let's talk about this catechism, Christ or Pascha. First, what is a catechism, and where did this particular catechism come from? Father Deacon Anthony, would you, would you mind responding to that? Sure. So I mentioned before that Christ established the church to pass on his teachings, the teachings of him and the apostles. It says, for example, in the epistles of Paul, 
that the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. So the church is meant to be a teacher. And as a teacher, the church tries to find ways to pass on the truth in a way that's most effective. And from the first century, the creation of catechisms has been one of the primary tools. In the first century, there was a catechism called the Didache, the teaching of the apostles. And ever since then, there have been a, a long series of catechisms. And a catechism is essentially a document that expounds on the faith, it presents the faith, it summarizes it, and expounds on it. Now, in Catholicism, there are many different catechisms. There have been quite a few. There's no one catechism that is the end-all and be-all. Now, in 1992, the, uh, the Vatican, you know, under the auspices of Pope John Paul II, released uh, what we call today the CCC, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. But it says in the introduction that it wasn't meant to be the only catechism. It was meant to inspire the creation of other catechisms, especially local catechisms. So Christ Pascha is one of these catechisms uh, that was inspired by the CCC, but it approaches it from a distinctly Byzantine angle. So again, the faith is exactly the same. The same core beliefs are there, but we look at the theology differently. We look at the spirituality differently. We have a very different liturgical expression. Christo Pascha was created by the Ukrainian Catholic Synod of Bishops. And the Ukrainian Catholic Church is just one of the many you know, Byzantine Catholic churches. Um, but the Synod of Bishops and the Ukrainian Catholic Church really took the initiative to do this. And keep in mind, the Ukrainian Catholic Church is the largest of the Byzantine Catholic churches. So it had the resources and the ability to do this. They have their own university you know, in uh, Ukraine. So our Synod of the Bishops created this document. And what's awesome about it is it's fully Catholic. You know, it does not water down any Catholic teachings. It doesn't, you know, try and undercut Catholic teachings, which sometimes you encounter in various places. But at the same time, it's fully Eastern, specifically Byzantine. It really presents the Byzantine theological tradition in a way that's authentic, but it shows how it's reconciled with the theology of the West as well. It shows the complementarity that we discussed earlier. So it's a document created by the Ukrainian Catholic bishops, but really it's applicable to the entire Byzantine Catholic tradition, whatever jurisdiction you belong to. Wonderful. Yes. And, and I think that idea of being fully Eastern, fully Catholic certainly is, is part of what, we, what we're striving for, uh, being faithful to that Eastern tradition. So, so the question arises in terms of the title. And by the way, I, I, I see in the chat uh, several people have mentioned that they were able to order uh, the catechisms and, and were successful from the Eparchy of St. Josephat, the Ukrainian Catholic Eparchy of St. Josephat, for a little over $30. Uh, and I think someone also ordered it from uh, Royal Doors as well. So, so it is available, it is online, and you can, and you can access it. So, so why the title Christ or Pascha? Why, why is that a, um, a title of, of a catechism? Sure. So the word Pascha may be unfamiliar to those in the West. In the Eastern Christian churches, especially those of the Byzantine tradition, whether Byzantine Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, Pascha is our term we use for Easter. It's, you know, we use it kind of interchangeably with the word Easter. And that word actually comes from uh, an old Aramaic word. Uh, you know, Pascha is a transliteration of the Aramaic word for Passover, the great you know, Jewish feast where they were called liberation from slavery in Egypt. Because of his connection with Passover and because Christ, you know, was crucified during Passover and then rose shortly thereafter, you know, Pascha became synonymous with resurrection in the East, it became synonymous with new life. Um, it's our term for Easter. So the catechism is called Christ or Pascha 
because the idea is that Jesus Christ leads us to new life. He leads us to a spiritual resurrection. So the catechism is meant to present his teachings in a way that lead to spiritual renewal in the life of those who read it. Beautiful, wonderful. And, and, and so with that emphasis, that proper emphasis on the Paschal mystery of sort of being the center of God's salvific initiative um, with, the, with the incarnation, um, how is the catechism structured? How does it present the faith uh, in light of the Paschal mystery? What, 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 well, how is the catechism structured? I, I like how they did this. So they took kind of two points of reference to structure it. The first is the Nicene Creed, otherwise called you know, the symbol of faith. Uh, again, for those who aren't familiar, the Nicene Creed is a creed, a statement of belief written by bishops in the early fourth century. It's meant to really explain the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. What does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, many churches recite it on Sundays. You know, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. You know, it goes on from there. Um, so it uses that as one of the main references for its structure. But the other thing it uses is what's called the anaphora of St. Basil the Great. Now, anaphora is another word for Eucharistic prayer. Now, here's one interesting thing about the Eastern tradition. In Eastern Christianity, whether Catholic or Orthodox, liturgy is seen as the primary teacher of theology. You know, you really learn theology by living out the liturgy and studying the liturgy. You know, our theological tradition is really laid out in many of our liturgical texts. One of the most important liturgical texts is this anaphora of St. Basil the Great, this Eucharistic prayer, um, because it lays out God's plan of salvation history. You know, it really shows how God worked through the history of humanity to lead us to salvation, all within this beautiful Eucharistic prayer that we use, for example, during Great Lent and on special feast days. Um, so by taking those two things together, the Nicene Creed and the anaphora of St. Basil the Great, it creates a really neat way of looking at the faith, you know, from the standpoint of belief, but also how God has worked in human history to lead us to salvation. And the catechism itself then, following that structure, is divided into three sections, you know, faith, worship, and life. Um, but altogether, it's meant to lead us towards a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of this document. And uh, I love the way it approaches it. That's great. Yes. And, and so in a sense, you could say that faith, worship, and life uh, in, in terms of kind of form the three pillars of Byzantine Catholic catechesis for us. This is that the, the West structures its catechism of the Catholic Church uh, differently, uh, but not entirely differently, but, but it has a fourfold structure, uh, whereas uh, we use the threefold structure of faith, worship, and life. So, so then, Robert, just uh, to go to you, what when we think about these three pillars, why are these topics of faith, worship, and life then so important to us as, as, uh, as Christians? Yeah, well, I, I think the Ukrainian Catholic Catechism really tries to give you a, a nice overview of kind of the foundations of what it means to be Eastern Christian. Um, and I like what Father Deacon Anthony was saying, you know, that faith, theology, right, belief, and worship, right, those two things come together at divine liturgy, right? And then the liturgy after the liturgy, which is what you mentioned earlier, Father Daniel, that outward extension into the world of, of Christ's grace and overflowing, you know, that superabundant grace that's meant to transform the world. Well, that's, that's the life of the church, 
right? That's that's what that's the life you live. That's morality. That's your you know your life of prayer, your relationships with others. So really, the catechism does a beautiful job emphasizing kind of you know faith, worship, and then the expectation of of now that you've received Christ. What's your expectation going out into the world to transform it and to set it on fire? Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of uh, St. John Chrysostom, and I, and I don't remember the exact passage, but he, um, he references sort of the three altars of life. There is the altar of the church, there is the altar of the home, and then there is the altar of the marketplace. And as, as those who are part of the royal priesthood of the baptized, which includes all the clergy, we are to go and offer uh, ourselves as living sacrifices upon these three altars to transform Eucharistically the whole world. I mean, this is, this is the beauty of the gospel message, that we, we live this liturgical existence uh, that, that takes us you know, to the peak of the mountain, the liturgical mountain in the, in the liturgy, but at the same time takes us down the mountain to, to transform the world into uh, really a new Eden, uh, a new paradise for God. That's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great and I think very integrated way of, of approaching our, our Christian life. I think, I think what you shared is, is exactly right. So, so how would an individual then use this catechism? Um, read it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the simple, I mean, I, I find myself, you know, I, in my, my study, my own study of theology, I come back to Christ or Pascha all the time. Um, I, I, you can't exhaust it. Um, it is such a wonderful resource, precisely because you can take a topic and then you get a wonderful reference from either the liturgy or one of the, the church fathers. And then that sparks an idea in your mind that, oh, well, maybe I need to go read this sermon that, you know, from Chrysostom, uh, uh, St. John Chrysostom in, in its context, right? And it leads to from one to the other. Uh, to an, so it's just you're, you're engaging your faith um, and you, you just you don't stop and you keep going. Um, and it's such a wonderful um, buffet of just uh, just uh, engagement. Um, so it's it's a wonderful resource if you don't have it already. I think we're pushing it pretty well. Um, it's it's <laughs> certainly worth getting and get it along with the the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the CCC. Um, what's beautiful about that document is how wonderfully Eastern it is in certain sections. There are many many references to our Eastern patristic tradition, um, and so really they go together. Uh, I mean, they really are meant to be, you know, two lungs, um, and you, you won't go wrong reading them. As I recall, the uh, the last section of the Catechism of the Catholic Church on prayer uh, was uh, was actually written by uh, uh, Father Jean Corbon, who was um, a Melkite Dominican, if I if I'm remembering correctly, uh, and uh, and so you have a whole section that is essentially written from an Eastern perspective. So, uh, so there, yes, there is a lot of that, that beauty there, uh, shared beauty in the catechism of the Catholic church. So I uh, want to just qu quickly shift gears here and uh, also encourage you to ask questions if you have questions. Uh, okay. So here's an interesting question. Father Joseph, we want to ask you this question. We're going to throw you all the tough ones today. Uh, what is the difference between an eparchy and a diocese? <laughs> There isn't much of a difference, except one is, they're both Greek words. Mm -hmm. One is used uh, to speak about Western Latin diocese, diocese, 
and the other one is used to speak about the Eastern uh, equivalent, mm -hmm. uh, but really they mean essentially the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's another way of expressing this idea of jurisdiction. Uh, and uh, we, have, we have an eparch who is our bishop, uh, and uh, just as a, a Catholic diocese would have, uh, have its own hierarch as well. Um, there's another question here, so don't go too far away, uh, uh, Father. It says, are Byzantine Catholics required to believe in the filioque? And I think there was an earlier question about the, uh, some Eastern jurisdictions do use the filioque. The Greek Catholic jurisdiction, the Byzantine Catholic jurisdictions do not. Uh, so are we required to believe the filio in the filioque, excuse me? So part of being within the Catholic communion is recognizing that even though we might not use that term uh, within the creed, and in fact, it wasn't there in the original uh, symbol of the faith, that even though it was eventually placed into the creed for various uh, reasons, both theological as well as political in the West, that we, we, it is not heretical. And in fact, uh, various Eastern saints, including Orthodox saints after the schism, understood that there was an involvement of the Son in the procession of the Spirit. It's just a matter of working out and explaining how that took place. And there's no way, just as, as Father Deacon Anthony said earlier, there was no way of saying, uh, succinctly summarizing the differences between the East and the West, so I couldn't give uh, uh, justice to that debate at this point. Suffice it to say that it sometimes is made into the biggest uh, difference between the East and the West, but it really historically was not the, the, the biggest difference dividing the two, uh, even though it might have been used as such from time to time. Uh, but the popes have always affirmed, uh, to my knowledge at least, that the Eastern Catholics are not required to use the phrase within, its, within their creed. Um, that, so even though we're not praying it, it doesn't mean that we don't accept that it is an orthodox formula. Uh, we're not saying everything in the creed, as, as you'll hear from my videos, we're not going to say everything in the creed that we believe anyway, but that doesn't mean that we don't accept wider things as being true. So it's not in our creed, even though uh, the church with whom we are in communion, the Latin church, does have it in its creed. And therefore, we accept uh, the, the, the fundamental uh, soundness of that word. It's just that it has a different meaning, um, and I should have mentioned this, in the, the, the Holy See, in fact, put out a document, the, the, the word in Greek means something completely different from the word in Latin. If you say the word in Greek, it actually is heretical. If you say it in Latin, it means something else, filioque, it's not. It has a completely different meaning. If you're interested in learning further, go and read the document from the Holy See. Thank you, Father. No, I think that's a that's a good answer and uh, anticipates, I think, some of what you're going to be covering in your discussions on faith, uh, which is, I think, very important for people to understand, you know, when it comes to, you know, being a, a communion uh, and a, a global, if you will, communion of churches, being a church of churches oftentimes means that, you know, if we if we if we start and become very strident uh, in uh, emphasizing these differences to the point where 
we create these false dichotomies, it actually does damage to our unity. And there's a way to express the truth that respects these organic differences that developed in, in the Eastern and the Western expressions of the same apostolic faith. And that's really what we're striving for. We don't always do it perfectly, but we do strive for that. And I think that's, uh, that's part of the beauty of, of uh, Catholicism. Um, I, I want to uh, uh, shift gears again. Uh, so thank you uh, all for your questions here. Um, when it comes to personal stories, now this is where I think we, we have some interesting perspectives here because I believe that almost all of us, although Father Joseph, you mentioned that uh, you do in your family background have, have a, a Greek Catholic heritage in your family background. I think the majority of us came from a Western tradition and, and became Byzantine. So I'm just curious, uh, what was it about the Byzantine tradition that first attracted you or interested you or is there a way that uh, that you could say, and I, and I and this is open to all of our panelists, uh, that you could say, you know what, this for me was one of the things that really led me to make the decision to become Byzantine. Um, and I'm just just curious if if uh, if our panelists are willing to share. And Father, feel free if you want to jump in first to 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 share that. Okay, well I'll I'll go first. I didn't grow up Eastern Catholic, even though I technically should have. Mm -hmm. because of my background but uh became uh, came to know the east uh, actually uh, from from various sources from really online mm -hmm. from learning about these things uh in through catholic fora and catholic websites catholic apologetics works mm -hmm. uh, uh one of which actually was put together by one of the other distinguished panelists here today and i owe to him um some of my introduction and, and 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 i owe to him my my priesthood at least he's part of the journey namely father deacon anthony so thank you for that uh, i wouldn't be here without your east to west website mm -hmm. um, but also going to university in london and learning uh, specializing in byzantine history or byzantine history as we would say in england uh, learning and then also befriending orthodox christians um, being welcomed into the orbit of orthodox christians and yet wanting to be in communion with the latin church wanting the orthodox experience but remaining in communion with the catholica hmm. uh, and so that led me to put all of those together and become uh, actually uh, technically the phrase i use was return to the tradition of my ancestors Wonderful, Father. I think that's a, um, and, and for many people, it is a, it, it is a, a process of discovery. Uh, and Father, uh, I was just looking for the link. I'm, uh, maybe Father, Father Deacon, when you have a chance, uh, you could post the link to your wonderful website, uh, easttowest.org, um, so that people have access to that. It's a, it's a terrific resource for a lot of people. And again, really attempts to be more irenic in its approach to the differences between East and West um, respecting respecting those differences at the same time, emphasizing that yes, we have a distinctive part, uh, expression of Catholicism to offer to the whole church. Uh, Robert, why don't you share a little bit about your journey? Yeah, happy to. Um, I guess it boils down to two things that really attracted me to the East from from Roman Catholicism. Uh, the first is hospitality. Um, when I was in college, I was blessed to meet 
three Ukrainian Catholic religious brothers from the Order of St. Basil uh, from Ukraine. Beautiful men, wonderful vocations, um, and just getting to know them and reading, you know, having them in class and they would wear their habits. And I, I went, who are you guys? Like, I'd never seen an Eastern Catholic before. Um, and they just, their witness to their faith um, and their invitation, you know, come to liturgy. Um, and, and just their, their wonderful, wonderful hearts grounded in their monastic life and in their Eastern uh, spirituality uh, just was immediately attractive. Um, and then once I saw the divine liturgy, um, I was in a theology program as, as an undergrad. And so many things that I was learning, they were sticking here. Like I understood the faith intellectually, but liturgically there was a disconnect for me especially with grace. I, I didn't understand grace. Um, but going to the divine liturgy and not just once, but twice, and, and I kept going back. And there's such a beautiful continuity in the East between what you know with your head needs to move into your heart because that's where you meet Christ. Um, and once I started reading the great uh, spiritual masters in the East, the great, you know, the desert fathers, especially, that that necessity and of our spiritual life to take what you're learning here and move it to the heart um, because that's the throne that's the center of the person and that's where you engage with christ um once i lived that out liturgically for a while the east just became my home um and so it's it's been a beautiful journey and i have no no regrets that's wonderful and and we look forward to your uh, to your service god willing as a deacon and, and it's interesting when you, uh, when you, I was a deacon for 12 years, when, uh, when you, when you move from participation as a layman to the diaconate and your role begins to shift to helping to animate the participation of others in the liturgy, you experience the liturgy in an entirely different way. Um, but that mystery is still there. Uh, it's, it's an amazing, amazing thing. So, uh, so thank you for sharing that perspective. Father Deacon, what, uh, what about your experience? Sure. So. I was raised Roman Catholic, and I was born, you know, in the 1970s. And um, in the 1970s and 80s, where I was, the Roman Catholic Church was kind of going through a period where they're trying very hard to be as modern and as relevant as possible. You know, we're talking guitars at every mass or at most masses. Uh, where I grew up, there was this abomination called the polka mass. They had, you know, polka music during the mass and stuff like that. It was very... um it was trying so hard to be modern with it that it was almost embarrassing. It was cringeworthy. Kind of like if you have a, if you're a teenager, you have a friend whose parents are in their forties and they're 20 year olds. It just felt like that. Right. But meanwhile, my next door neighbors were Byzantine Catholic and I got to be good friends with her son. And I stayed over at their house a few times and they invited me to come to church with them on Sunday mornings. And I went with them and I began to experience the divine liturgy. And I have to say, I was initially confused but at the same time, fascinated. I didn't understand what was going on. They didn't really explain it to me, but it felt so otherworldly. It felt so different. It, it was the exact opposite of trying to be with it, trying to be culturally relevant. And I actually began to have dreams about the divine liturgy at night. It, it just, it was so otherworldly that it just haunted me. I couldn't let go of it. And that, that stuck with me, right? So growing up, I felt this draw towards it. What really solidified it though was when I was in college. <clears throat> So I went to college and I, I was studying religion and philosophy, and I became really interested in Buddhism, specifically Zen Buddhism, 
because Zen Buddhism is about a practice. You know, in my experience, uh, Christianity had often been reduced to intellectual arguments. You know, Christianity was about a bunch of books on a shelf, you know, you know, whose theologian was right, mine or yours. Whereas Zen Buddhism kind of put doctrine aside and was focused on a practice of meditation. So you have an experience. And I didn't, I didn't really experience that so much in Christianity, right? But then around that same time, I met a, a really amazing priest in Father David Abernathy. He's a Roman Catholic priest with an order called the Oratorians. And he introduced me to the Jesus Prayer. And he introduced me to the Philokalia. It's a collection of writings on Eastern spirituality. We'll get to it later in the series, I'm sure. Um, but what I saw there was what I found in, in Buddhism, which was a practice, you know, a practical thing you can do to grow spiritually apart from all the doctrine, apart from all the books. And uh, that combined with my experience of the divine liturgy, it just kind of pulled me in. And I just felt like this is where I belonged. And don't get me wrong, I love the Western church. I love the Roman Catholic church and the tradition. But it became clear to me that, that God wanted me in the Eastern church. And um, so when I was 21, I officially became Greek Catholic. And it's been a blessing to me. I, I love every minute of it. You know, it's challenging at times. We're part of a small group next to a very large, you know, uh, uh, Roman Catholic majority. So on one hand, oftentimes our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters don't understand us. And then on the other side, we have many Eastern Orthodox people who despise us. Um, I have quite a few who are friends who are wonderful, but online, the majority of them seem to be very hostile towards Eastern Catholics. So we're kind of in the middle, but at the same time, when you're getting that much you know, misunderstanding and hatred, it probably means you're doing something right. And I feel like God put us here to kind of, uh, in a weird way, maybe bring together the Orthodox and the Roman Catholics, and maybe to try and, and bring back this full expression of Christianity, because I've become convinced that Roman Catholicism, so many of its problems could be solved by a healthy dose of the East, and likewise in Eastern Orthodoxy, so many of their problems could be solved by a healthy dose, dose of the West. And we're kind of in the middle there, but I think, I think it's the right place to be. Yeah, you know, it, it reminds me of what our, our mutual friend uh, Nathaniel McCollum once said to me over, uh, uh, who was Eastern Orthodox at the time, and, and uh, we were having lunch together in North Carolina, and he said, he said, you know, the Catholic Church is striving to be a church of the nations, which means that we won't do it perfectly, but, but nobody else seems to want to do it, and, uh, and that being that church of the nations, and, and respecting the unique traditions of each church, and, and liturgically spiritually, theologically, legally, all of that uh, means that we're going to make mistakes. But, but I think the goal, ultimately, uh, is to live that, that unity and charity, um, I, which I think is important. So I want thank you for sharing that experience. I, I just, I'll only share that for me, um, it was my experience of the liturgy as well. I think all of us have kind of highlighted that as an important point. I remember going to visit my first Byzantine Catholic divine liturgy and um, was invited there by a Melkite monk at one of the local Ruthenian churches at Franciscan University and uh, or near Franciscan University. And I believe it was St. Thomas Sunday. And when I was there, I was just awestruck by, you know, singing Christ is risen and all the, you know, all the things that all the beauty of it. And I, I came back and I said, you know, I've always believed in the resurrection. I've just never experienced it that way before. 
And that moment became a moment of, of a journey, reading uh, Callistos Ware's uh, The Orthodox Way, uh, and then rediscovering this gem of the face of God by Archbishop Joseph Raya, my father knew uh, when he was at seminary in Alabama years ago, uh, actually serving at the parish where you are, uh, Robert, uh, you know, this understanding of the beauty of East uh, in communion, in this Catholic communion that's expressed by Archbishop Raya. I mean, all of a sudden it became something where I go, I, I need to be a part of this. This is something I really want to be a part of. And, and so I think for people, a lot of times that experiential dimension is, is an entry point um, because it's, it's really about encounter, an, an encounter with the glory of Christ and uh, you know, the, the glorious incarnation of Christ radiating out through the mysteries and inviting us into the full communion of the kingdom of the Holy Trinity. I mean, what an amazing thing. And to, and to leave liturgy with that experience. So, you know, so when we talk about these, uh, the teachings of the church, we really mean the teachings of the church, especially as expressed doxologically, as expressed through its worship. Um, and I think we've, we've emphasized that quite a bit uh, this evening, too. So um, I want to, <coughs> excuse me, in the remaining time that we have, I want to also uh, talk to Father uh, Joseph a little bit about what we're going to be seeing here uh, in, the, uh, in, in the coming weeks, because one of the things about the program becoming Byzantine is that we have these webinars we're going to be offering monthly. So on the fourth Sunday of each month, we're going to have a webinar. But, but after each webinar, uh, the Tuesday after the webinar, you're going to see three lessons that are going to be posted to our YouTube channel. We'll send out a link to everyone so they have access to it. And there are going to be three lessons that uh, relate to the topic in the Catechism Christ or Pascha. And so, uh, Father Joseph, maybe you could share a little bit about, you know, what you're going to be talking about since you are the instructor for our series on faith, uh, and then we'll move into worship and then to life later on. What, what are you going to be talking about in these lessons? Okay. So, uh, as one of the panelists mentioned earlier, the Christ or Pascha is divided into those three sections, faith, worship and life and so the first section the first third of the catechism is what i will be focusing on um, i guess you could say it's it's part of the um, the intellectual um, area of theology that i focused on the most i did my license and i'm doing my doctorate now in uh, dogmatic theology uh, more specifically eastern christian but also um, with a very good uh, knowledge of, of western Latin Catholic theology. Uh, so what we're going to do is focus on that first third of the catechism. Uh, we're going to look at what, uh, what, uh, how our journey is going to be determined by that division. So how the Byzantine catechumenate uh, is going to be is going to begin. The journey will begin by uh, really understanding the faith and. And as we know, as, as someone said earlier, that there's those two prayers, the symbol of the faith, the creed of Nicaea, Constantinople, as well as the anaphora of St. Basil the Great, the Eucharistic prayer of St. Basil the Great, how those two things capture the entire uh, tradition of the faith in those two liturgical moments or prayerful moments. And then as we move on, we'll understand a little bit about revelation, what revelation is. God reveals himself to us 
as we sing in, in the Byzantine tradition at matins, other than during Lent, other than during the, the so-called Alleluia days. Uh, uh, the Lord is God and has revealed himself to us, part one. He reveals himself to us. And then our response, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So faith is God. Our knowledge of God must be revealed. And then our response comes from that. So I'm going to look at what this revelation sh is showing us about God, how we understand revelation, especially using the two, the two main sources, or really the one source, the, the, the great tradition, out of which we have the oral tradition, which this is really part of what we're doing. Uh, this is part of that oral tradition right now. We're handing on the faith, but also the written tradition, namely the sacred scriptures. So how God reveals himself to us through all of these means. And then we're going to look at what God is, who God is, based on what he's revealed himself to us as, namely the Holy Trinity. God is father. He's creator, but also father. Uh, God is also the son the son who is the image of the father. And, and really, uh, I'll, the, the third I'll put to the side for just a couple of seconds. In that revelation of those two, we learn, we'll learn about creation. We'll learn about God the Father as creator and creation and what, that, what he intended for us and also what went wrong. So what went wrong in sin, what went wrong in the fall and how he fixed it. And how he fixed it is precisely in view of the second person the second person, the Messiah, the Son of God, God become a man, God incarnate, uh, who came into the world, proclaimed the kingdom, performed the many miracles, gave us the teachings, what the gospel teaches us about this, this person, this divine person, and uh, his saving work, the Paschal mystery, and of course, his second coming in glory, and what we're looking forward to in the day of resurrection, and then the church he established. So the church, which he formed to be filled with the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's what the, okay, I'm going to bring the third person of the Spirit back in. So the third person of the, of, the, of the Holy Trinity back in, the Spirit. And who the Spirit is and the life of grace that we enter into because we are now in communion with the Spirit. We have people of the Pentecost as well as people of the resurrection. And who we are as a family because we share in that grace because we share in the divine life that has been given to us, intended by the Father, made possible by the Son, and realized in us in the Holy Spirit, and what the life in the church looks like, the life of prayer, and especially the life of the holy mysteries um, in, in the sacraments, the holy mysteries. So what does that mean for us, and how our life in in the church is realized, so especially, uh, it, it, you know, going to, to in, in culminating in the highest point, which is the celebration of the Eucharist and, 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 and what, that, what that looks like. And that sort of goes into the second section of the catechism, which is the prayer, the liturgy. Uh, is, that, is that okay for a summary? No, I think that's a great summary, Father. I think you uh, emphasize especially the, the Trinitarian nature of the presentation of our faith. Uh, and because that, you know, it's, it's about our, life, our participation, the life and love of the Most Holy Trinity. Uh, that's that's what all of this is about the kingdom of the holy trinity so uh so thank you for for sharing that and and i just want to share uh briefly here as we uh come close to concluding uh our session this evening and we are going to do one more giveaway so sit tight we're going to give one more uh 20 answers to eastern catholicism away uh the best way to participate here 
is really about, first of all, attending the monthly webinar and then reading the catechism. And each of the sections in that link that I shared with you for the reading plan of the Catechism Christ or Pascha, uh, each of those sections are outlined for you. And so in Father Joseph's lessons, which he's going to be giving on faith, uh, which he just uh, shared a little bit about uh, just a moment ago, you want to listen to those weekly lessons. You can watch them on YouTube. We're also going to be uploading them to SoundCloud eventually, so you'll be able to listen to them as podcasts. Uh, this is, uh, you know, they're going to be 10 to 15 minutes uh, summarizing many of the teachings in the Catechism Christ or Pascha, uh, something that you can use to enhance your faith, and then pray, reflect, and discuss. So attend the monthly webinar, read the Catechism, listen to the weekly lessons, and then pray, reflect, and discuss with others. Perhaps you want to use this as part of your parish uh, adult education group, perhaps even a Byzantine catechumenate. Someone mentioned uh, that they are interested in becoming Byzantine Catholic. They're coming from a Southern Baptist background. They want to learn a little bit more uh, about this. I know I have some uh, individuals who are um, Protestant that are interested in becoming Byzantine Catholic, and so we're going to be using these lectures, these lessons and the webinars and the readings together as part of their formation process. Uh, but even if you are already an, East, an Eastern Catholic or Byzantine Catholic and you want to just dive a little deeper Spending time talking about it with others is also very helpful, but praying especially is, is the most important thing. And so uh, with this particular session we have coming up uh, on the introduction to the Byzantine Catechumenate, Faith, Prayer, and Life of the Church, lesson one will be an introduction to Byzantine Catechumenate and review of the concluding section on prayer. So there's some wonderful prayers at the back of the catechism that you can make use of. In fact, Father Deacon Anthony is going to lead us in prayer at the end. Uh, with, uh, with one of the prayers from the catechism. Uh, then we're going to get into that symbol of faith, the, uh, the Creed of Nicaea, Constantinople, and then the Anaphora of St. Basil the Great. Uh, and you'll see the, the paragraphs there listed associated with Christ or Pascha in each one of these sections, each one of these lessons. So hopefully uh, by engaging again in attending the monthly webinars, reading the catechism, listening to the weekly lessons, and then praying, reflecting, and discussing uh, this is something that will enhance your own faith life, your own walk in Christ, your own life in Christ uh, and the church as you explore a little bit more of the riches of become, becoming Byzantine. And again, I want to, uh, to thank all of you for participating in our webinar this evening. I want to thank our panelists, especially Father Deacon Anthony Dragani, uh, who has that wonderful website. I hope you go to that uh, easttowest.org website. I want to thank uh, Mr. Robert Klesko from EWTN for participating in this. We're delighted to have, have you as part of our, our panel here. Father Joseph Matlack as well. Uh, looking forward to the lessons on faith that you're going to provide. And also, Bianca, thank you so much for being uh, our co-host and also for picking all the winners uh, for today's session. So we will post this webinar as, as well as the other three lessons that are part of this month's treatment of the Catechism Christ or Pascha. These will be posted to our YouTube channel uh, by Tuesday evening, so be looking for those. We'll send out the link so that you can access that, and, uh, and uh, we wish you all the best, and uh, certainly uh, we'll be keeping you in our prayers. And so, Father Deacon Anthony, could you conclude us then in prayer this evening? Certainly. I'm going to conclude with one of my favorite prayers. This is found in Christ or Pascha in the section on prayers in the appendix. Uh, I have the digital version in front of me, and the digital version is on page 309. Uh, it might be different in the print version, though I'm not sure. But this is the prayer to the Holy Spirit, otherwise known as Heavenly King. So I'll conclude with that. 
the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly King, Advocate, Spirit of Truth, who are everywhere present and fill all things, treasure of blessings, bestower of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all that defiles us, and our good one, save our souls. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you again, and God bless you all, and we will see you next month. Be sure to register if you haven't already. Be sure, and I'll post the link here, uh, be sure to register for our next webinar, so that way you can uh, participate in uh, the webinar and receive notifications on that. I'll put, post the link there at Vineyard of the Lord for, uh, through Ticket Taylor. And uh, if you wish to donate, uh, we certainly would welcome any donations you give. We do this for free. Uh, and uh, But we'd like to uh, invite you if we want to support this. And we were grateful as well to our Epperkey, Disney Catholic Epperkey of, uh, of Phoenix for its support. God bless you all and have a wonderful evening. Mm-hmm.